Hello and welcome to ZSL's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Boom, and today we're going wild about social science. Woo. But Moni, it's the Wild Science Podcast. What has social science got to do with it? And what is it anyway? Well, turns out that the importance of social science is becoming more and more recognized as a super valuable tool in conservation. After all, the conservation crisis is at its core a social issue, driven by society's demand for resources and space. But human behavior isn't just a driver of biodiversity loss, it also may hold the key to solving this crisis. So in this episode, we will be particularly focusing on indigenous communities around the world because they possess an extremely rich knowledge about their local environmental resources and biodiversity. And it is this indigenous knowledge that can be an invaluable tool to aid conservation efforts. And you don't even need to take my word for it, because with me today is Lizzie Jones, PhD student here at ZSL, who is a fountain of knowledge herself specifically on society's perception of nature and how these perceptions change over time. How's the PhD going? <laughs> it's going really well, thanks. Um, this is a question that you should always ask PhD students. <laughs> yeah, and see what their reaction is. Yeah, the facial expressions. Yeah, yeah, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's hard, but it's rewarding. And um, I really like the variety because yesterday I was tied to my computer and coding and today's a podcast and a symposium. So pretty fun. Just to explain my PhD and what I do, I work on understanding a psychological phenomenon called shifting baseline syndrome, which could have serious implications for conservation. That's why I'm partly based here at ZSL. So shifting baseline syndrome is made up of kind of two theories. One, the main one that people talk about is generational amnesia, and the other is personal amnesia. Generational amnesia, the idea is that, say, everyone compares what they see and perceive right now to a baseline that they might have set earlier in their life or career. So last Friday? Fish and Fish Day. Friday. Fish Friday. So you were talking about how you were a bit disappointed that the size of the piece of fish used to be like ginormous and would overflow the plate and you'd have to share it with people. So that's your kind of baseline of what you would expect. Whereas I look at fish today, not saying that I'm much younger than you. <laughs> I'm not trying to be rude. But I see that fish as a pretty kind of normal size because I've set my baseline way more recently. And by the way, Lizzie really didn't share. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> okay, you're forgiven. I'm happy because I never experienced that bigger fish. And they were gone before I had a chance to see them. So unless Moni had told me about that fish being a lot bigger, I would have no idea that that change had even happened. Apply that to biodiversity or climate change, almost any system that people at ZSL here work on. And over multiple generations, the environment might degrade and change, and people just accept that degraded state as normal and might not see a need to conserve it. For many cases, local and indigenous knowledge is really is the key because if people can communicate between generations, people might be way more aware of that long-term change and combat the effects of shifting baseline syndrome. Excellent, sounds like a really interesting PhD. I also currently feel like 100 years old with all my experience of how big the fish was in the canteen. Oh, sorry, it was my example. <laughs> so Lizzie, remember when I spoke to you to plan out this podcast, you mentioned that your main driver for this podcast was to highlight the importance of social science Definitely. for conservation and to change people's perception of this often overlooked branch of conservation science. So what's drawn you to using social science in your research? Oh, it's just really interesting, especially from a conservation point of view. I mean, I started off 
at the University of Southampton and I was studying zoology so I had very little social science in my course but in third year I started studying way more of interactions between people and nature and I became way more interested in the kind of human side of the natural world. Humans just cannot be overlooked as an unavoidable part of nature for better or for worse. I actually had to look up the official definition of social science. It is the study of society and the manner in which people behave and influence the world around us. Social science not only helps us find the ways in which we can work with people and understand and conserve nature, but also how we can make that benefit everyone. And if this wasn't enough to convince you about the importance of social science for conservation, with us now is a double act. Professor Sam Turvey from the Institute of Zoology here at ZSL and Dr. Raj Puri from the, and here I take a deep breath because it's quite a mouthful, Centre for Biocultural Diversity from the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent. Correct. Excellent. <laughs> Good. So what can conservation learn from, say, anthropology and social science? Well, there, traditionally, there's sort of two things that social sciences have contributed to conservation. One is to study conservation, that is, in the sort of reflexive way, to examine conservation projects, see how they work, why they're successful or not successful, what kinds of impacts they have. And then there are those who work in conservation as opposed to studying conservation. And they're uh, often documenting relationships between people and wildlife or protected areas. And social scientists would then play an active role in sort of mediating the relationships between people and conservationists or conservation institutions. I think one extra dimension as well is that most conservation research up till recently has been carried out through what you might think of as sort of standard ecological data collection, so biologists doing field surveys. But in particular for many endangered species, it might not be possible to get robust data from a relatively short term field survey by trained scientists. But conversely, many of these endangered species live in landscapes which have got a lot of untrained, non-scientific local people who live in them, use the resources, might know a lot about local biodiversity, the specific ways in which local cultures have interacted with species which are now endangered both in the present and in the past. So all of these incredibly knowledgeable local communities might be able to provide, in many cases, huge amounts of unique insights which can be directly relevant for informing conservation. So from your experience when you were out in the field doing these surveys of local knowledge for example, how did you go about it and how do you think it can make a major contribution to actual conservation actions? Okay, I did most of my field work in Borneo, working with uh, indigenous Penan hunter-gatherers and farmers, Sweden farmers. And my modus operandi as an anthropologist was to do participant observation. So I spent two years learning how to hunt and hunted in the forest of Borneo for wild pigs and monkeys and all sorts of things. And uh, through participating in these kinds of activities with local people, I learned a lot about their abilities and also the kinds of knowledge they have about plants and animals. And this was, interestingly, at a time when the World Wildlife Fund was thinking about establishing a national park in this area. So my research fed into producing information for the initial surveys for the park. My research assistants ended up working for WWF as guides. We took scientists into the forests um, to do all the basic surveys from birds to rattan, insects, etc. 
And uh, these scientists learned directly from my research assistant. And there we had a lovely meeting of two different sort of ontologies, two different worldviews, mm. and a lot was gained through that. And so through this information, we then wrote the proposals for the master plan, the management plan, which ended up being a co-management plan for Kainantara National Park in East Kalimantan. There were a lot of other aspects to this, including a huge effort to map using community mapping, uh, resources and locations of resources and important uh, vegetation and animals, etc., in the park. So all of the basic biodiversity assessment and ethnobiology assessment, that is the way people use and understand the biota of these areas, fed into the management plan for this park. And that's just one example of where local people's knowledge and local people themselves and the skills they have fed into conservation. The approach I've taken has been in some ways complementary to that, that instead of focusing large amounts of, of time and effort on a single site and the communities who live within that single landscape, I've in many cases tended to adopt the approach of trying to gather data slightly more rapidly and across larger areas when you're trying to answer a particular specific conservation question often pertaining to a particular endangered species. So for example, a few years ago I did some work in both Vietnam and Laos focused on the Saula, which is one of the world's rarest mammals and which has not been seen in the wild by any trained scientists. But it's known to be in very low numbers in a fragmented distribution from animals which have been hunted by local hunters or through knowledge that's come about from discussing rare animal distributions from, from local resource users. So the approach that we took in that situation was to have standardised questionnaires that were conducted in the various different local languages across that series of landscapes across multiple countries, but using the same questionnaire questions in the same order, and that allowed us to gather systematic comparative data on the presence, the abundance, the last sighting encounters that different people in these different landscapes had had with both Saula and other mammal species. And that allowed us to understand not absolute patterns of abundance, but at least an index of relative presence, absence, relative abundance of Saula in these different protected areas we were looking at. So that allowed, developed a new baseline of suggesting which landscapes might have greater relative numbers of this endangered species and therefore which landscapes should ideally become a focus for greater prioritisation of resources to try and protect that animal. I suppose I've already spoken to Lizzie a little bit about this, of shifting baselines and so on, but is it not also a real risk that this, this knowledge that you're collecting actually gets eroded over time, that we might be losing this knowledge as much as we're losing biodiversity, for example? Very, very much so. That's a very astute point and one that we know is happening globally, that knowledge, both local ecological knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge, it's being lost, eroded for complex reasons associated with globalisation. But at the community level, we can see following species extinction events, the loss of this knowledge at an intergenerational level. And certainly around the world, patterns of knowledge loss will vary for a variety of ecological and sociocultural reasons, but we can see it happening in front of us. So really very much also a crisis discipline, trying to kind of keep this knowledge somehow alive. We have to realize that so much of local knowledge is embedded in language. 
You have to learn the local language to really understand what people are talking about and to get the nuances of their knowledge and the context in which that knowledge is expressed, whether it's through religion, belief systems, etc., cultural practices. So the loss of language, which we know is happening faster than the loss of species around the world, is one of the important uh, driving forces of the loss of local people's knowledge. Preserving languages is extremely important in that regard. Well, that's so interesting, because that's exactly what we're about to talk to Paul about. And he works in the Cyclops Mountains, so it really shows that it's such a global issue. Apart from this loss of indigenous knowledge, what do you think are the main challenges for applying this unique body of knowledge to conservation? The important thing about local people's knowledge, whether it's indigenous, traditional, or or any local community has knowledge of their environment. Mm -hmm. The important thing about it is it's usually embedded in what they do, a lot of it, and it's often difficult to sort of extract from that context. To understand the way knowledge works within that community it takes quite a bit of time. It takes embedding oneself into a community, establishing rapport, getting trust from local people. And at the same time, I think we, we have to be careful of the ethics of using local people's knowledge. There's all sorts of potential harm that can come to local people from them giving up their knowledge. There's intellectual property rights for things like knowledge of medicinal plants. There's fear that there might be reprisals from the powers that be. We're often talking about minority populations, indigenous peoples who are fairly powerless, and something that they actually have that's theirs is their knowledge and understanding of the environment, which they may not be willing to give up. Mm -hmm. I think really one of the great ways forward, of course, is involving local people in research, as we do in this country in citizen science, involving uh, local people in doing research on their own environments, and we've been doing this all over the place training local people how to be research assistants, how to collect data, and Mm -hmm. to let them get involved in the production and use of their own knowledge and skills in conservation work. So I work primarily on biodiversity indicators and how we can track the status of nature over time. But I'm aware there are similar indices and metrics looking at the loss of indigenous languages. I suppose it's also indicative of what's happening to local ecological knowledge, right? Yeah, definitely. So language and cultures and entire knowledge systems all the way around the world. Imagine the amount of knowledge held by these local communities that might divulge so much we don't know on these unknown species. So if the local language or culture is lost, so is this like critical knowledge of that species. So following from that, I'm going to introduce you to Paul Barnes. So Paul is based at ZSL alongside the EDGE team and also in the Human Ecology Research Group or HERG in the Department of Anthropology at UCL. Paul also runs a conservation consultancy business and hats off to anyone who manages a PhD on top of anything else. So he obviously has a keen interest in policy that works for both people and nature. And I'm super jealous that you get to work in Papua in Indonesia, Paul. So am I. I want to ask, why Papua and why did you focus on indigenous knowledge in that country? So the project actually came about from previous work that Zellis had done a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the former head of conservation programs, Jonathan Bailey, went out there, I think back in 2005, maybe even earlier. Um, and then later, my supervisor, Sam Turvey, and Kylie Walsman, the former head of EDGE. And the project really came from them, but since then it's changed a lot. Um, As they do. Yes. Is that not, is that not yeah. normal for any PhD project? Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. definitely. So why focus on the indigenous knowledge there? Why, why Papua? 
What became quite clear very quickly is originally I was going out to look for threatened species, very rare and cryptic species, and using local knowledge to help identify where these are, how many there are. Um, but it very quickly became aware that actually what's equally as important out there is that this local knowledge and the cultures there are under a significant amount of threat and changing very fast. And the way that they relate to nature in that area is being put under a lot of pressure from lots of outside sources. So the PhD really took a direction. Part of it is looking at that change. So I think the area that you work in, in Papua, right, is probably the area with the best name ever. It's Cyclops Mountains, right? I mean, that does sound like a, like a theme park, right? Pretty I'm not going to lie. It's yeah. probably very exciting. Does it look like yeah. the Eye of Sauron stuck on a mountain? <laughs> I'm not sure. What well, are the Cyclop, Cyclops Mountains like? They are incredibly mysterious. And when it was first described to me by Sam and Jonathan, it's, it's almost like Skull Island of King Kong movies. It's, it's very mountains rise straight out of the Pacific Ocean and then they sort of disappear up into these cloud-covered hilltops into big cloud forests, and they they rise very, very steeply. They're sort of incised with big river valleys, and it's all covered in dense rainforest. And there's deafening sounds of birdsong and jungle cicadas and all the rest of it. It really is a mysterious place. Have you seen a cyclops yet? Not yet. So what specifically do you think is leading to this erosion of people's cultures and language that's potentially losing this local ecological knowledge? So it's lots of things. Obviously, cultures do change. They are very dynamic and they they change through time. But these sort of outside influences that are happening sort of related to globalisation as people get sort of plugged into this global market, they're happening so fast that people are unable to adapt to it. Um, And that's what's kind of unwinding language. And yeah, language isn't being taught in schools anymore, the indigenous languages. It's being shifted from what was there into Indonesian. Okay, and that loses some of those kind of species names that were only found in those local languages, yeah. is that right? So an example then is the common spotted couscous in the Cyclops Mountains. It's a very cute marsupial. Um, it looks like a teddy bear, but this couscous comes in various different colour morphs. Each one has its own distinctive local name, and people even say that they have slightly distinct behaviours and they will hang out at different altitudes. But as the the language changes and shifts into Indonesian, all those different names become just couscous. And even the other species of couscous as well, are all lumped together as couscous. And these will develop over time and they will pick up new names, but it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. And in that time, some of these species might actually be lost, I guess. So that knowledge base could also be lost. Wow. So what specifically are the changes that you're seeing in the Cyclops Mountains then? Do you see this loss of language and knowledge there as well and the same causes? So I've been working primarily with four different indigenous groups there and of those four indigenous groups, three of them will likely lose their language with the death of the current grandparent generation. So when those grandparents are gone, the language is gone forever and obviously all the knowledge that's wrapped up within that language dies with it. And effectively these languages are almost already dead because they're not being taught to children. Um, they're not being taught in school so much. And that's that's really the problem that's occurring there with the language. So Paul, when we planned this podcast, we came across a note from you where you said that you would challenge some of the common assumptions of mainstream conservation. So what do you see as mainstream conservation? And which assumptions should we go and challenge? So this is all grounded in what I've done in the Cyclops Mountains. So what I've seen there is a protected area that has been imposed on these people since 1995. And this protected area is a very strict protected area. People are no longer allowed access into the protected area and it borders right up to their villages. 
So they've had to move their villages because of kind of administration of the village territories, and they're just not getting the use of that area that they used to. Knowledge kind of comes from use and practice in that kind of world. That practice is still implemented throughout the globe in many protected areas. So yeah, I guess it's the difference between mainstream conservation and what's actually happening on the ground. So Lizzie, from your experience and PhD studies, what do you see as the main things influencing how people interact and connect with nature? Well, accessibility and local culture are definitely going to be biggies. And I'm sure Chantelle is going to give you a really good overview of that in the next part of the podcast. Especially connection and connectedness to nature, that's really become like a massive research interest at the moment. And this describes not only how likely people are to protect nature, but also kind of suggests that a connection to nature is likely to have lots of positive health benefits, mental health benefits. So that's why it's catching so much attention. But there's also the opposite issue. So opposite connection or connectedness to nature, there's this idea of an extinction of experience. And people are increasingly saying this is likely in the younger generation, so where younger people are way more likely to play computer games than become interested in nature and knowledgeable of nature. And there's lots and lots of reasons for this, just general cultural differences, but also uh, loss of green spaces, especially in urban areas, younger people moving from rural areas to urban areas, and just a lack of intention to go outside and play. So. All of that makes it way less likely for especially younger people to experience the great outdoors all over the world. So I suppose one of the big influences has got to be religion. And Chantal Elkin from the Alliance of Religions and Conservation knows a thing or two, or in fact tons, about the role of religion in conservation. I have to say I've been super excited to chatting to you, Chantal. I suppose as scientists we often sidestep religion, but surely religion provides the moral compass for a large number of people worldwide. So how can we harness this to help conservation? Well, long before there was a formal conservation movement, religious groups and communities have really been protecting nature, you know, for, for a very long time. There are many synergies between the principles of environmental conservation and the values held by faith groups. Um, this realization is growing in both the religious and conservation camps. I think in the last 20 years, there's been a deep re-examination by the faiths of their beliefs and their teachings around nature conservation due to the deepening environmental crisis. And every single faith has earth-honoring beliefs, and they're using these now as called to action. So, for example, the Pope has issued his environmental encyclical, the Laudato Si, in 2015. So, yes, it's a, a powerful force, particularly in those countries that are most biodiverse and most threatened. In many of these countries, faith is a dominating cultural characteristic, such as in Indonesia, where we have a big program Almost 90% of people there identify as Muslim, and there's 800,000 mosques and 80,000 Islamic schools, and across Africa, religions run 50 to 60% of schools. There's a huge networks and platforms for education and awareness through the faith networks. So there's a lot that can be done together between the religious and conservation communities, but we're slowly, slowly waking up to that in conservation circles. Do you have any kind of key examples of what you're really trying to achieve? 
Well, our purpose really is to help the major religions of the world develop their own environmental programs based on their core beliefs and values and practices. And I think we all recognize in the conservation movement that if we rely on the governments of this world and the NGOs of this world, regardless of ZSL and all the other great organizations out there, we're not going to really resolve the incredible challenges we face in conservation at the moment. So I think there's a really a huge growing recognition that we need to engage millions more people in civil society and conservation. And the people who affiliate with religion form the greatest uh, slice of civil society. So how would that work in practice? So if you go and say, for example, some of the biggest threats to wildlife uh, come from things like wildlife trade, for example, if this is an issue, how would you start approaching a religious group to start working with them? Well, I can give you an example from Indonesia where we actually have launched a wildlife trade program with religious and conservation partners. There's a national Islamic authority called the MUI. That's the umbrella group of all Muslim organizations in the country and oversees all the mosques and the schools and has a huge influence also over the use of Islamic funds which in Indonesia totals over $200 billion. And we're working with them on a more global scale with religious sort of investments to move these funds into investments that not only don't harm the earth, but also help protect biodiversity. In 2013, with our Indonesian partner at the Center for Islamic Studies at Indonesia's National University, we asked the MUI, this National Islamic Council, to issue a Muslim response to the biodiversity crisis. And we brought them together with leading conservationists in Indonesia to discuss and debate the issues in conservation and how they relate to Islam. And six months later, this National Islamic Council issued the first of two incredible environmental Islamic fatwas, which are edicts that are expected to be followed by every sector of society and every Indonesian Muslim. So this first fatwa prohibited participation in the illegal wildlife trade and called on every Muslim in Indonesia to protect threatened species and threatened habitats. And so this was just a huge, unprecedented move in mm. Indonesia and really embedded the principles of conservation within Islam there. After that, the Ministry of Environment and Forests was so excited about this fatwa, they asked the Islamic Council to issue another fatwa on prohibiting destructive forest and peatland fires, which the council did in 2015 as well. So our role was to help facilitate that dialogue between the conservation and the religious leaders. We've developed with them a training program for Muslim clerics. And we've trained about 400 local Muslim leaders in Sumatra, West Java, and Kalimantan in both of these fatwas, and largely in coordination with WWF Indonesia at their priority conservation sites. And those clerics, in turn, have committed to raising awareness about these fatwas in their communities in these priority conservation areas to about 20,000 people, which means that in mosques and schools and community groups, the messages of Islamic values relating to conservation is being reinforced. And we've just started to sort of monitor the impact. So in Sumatra, from 2015 to 2017, we saw actually a, a huge 
rise in the intention of local Muslim communities there to engage in conservation. I know that Lizzie has a story that she really wants you to tell. Yeah, well, I went to a talk from you when I was at the University of Southampton and you especially mentioned the work of Buddhist monks in Cambodia and I thought it was a really kind of powerful example of how important religion could be in conservation and how effective it could be. So could you just give a quick overview? Sure, (laughs) sure. I'm glad you liked that one. (laughs) Yeah, so as I mentioned, I used to work with Conservation International and I was living in Cambodia. And before I left, I visited a place called the Monks Community Forest, where I came across a group of Buddhist monks who were protecting what is probably the largest and most successful community forest in the country, almost 20,000 hectares. And I realized they were doing it with no outside help or financial resources, but basically based on a conviction that protecting this forest was aligned with their Buddhist values to do no harm and to end suffering and to honor the forest where the Buddha was enlightened. And I was really just sort of blown away by what I saw. So what I found there was really a unique system of Buddhist-based approaches to forest and wildlife conservation. And one of those was the practice of tree ordination. This is a practice in which the monks wrap their saffron robes around a tree and they ceremonially ordain the tree as a monk. And everybody in Cambodia knows that if you harm a monk, you will reap, you know, so much bad karma, it's not worth it. So ordaining trees as monks effectively protects the forest area where the trees are ordained and the wildlife that's in the forest. These monks have also been patrolling the forest, asking loggers and hunters to stop their illegal activity, and it's been working because of their position of respect in society. They've also been inspiring the poor villagers who are living around the forest to join them in these patrols. And they've created this conservation ethos in these communities that didn't exist before. So that's when I sort of woke up to the power and the potential of working with religious groups. I I thought this is a sustainable sort of native spiritual approach to the protection of nature that in a Buddhist country can resonate in many communities around the country and can be replicated. I, I'm not surprised that you were inspired by that, to be quite honest, because yeah. that, is, that is absolute genius. We should ordain more trees as We monks. should ordain more trees. <laughs> I mean, not we. I have absolutely no power to do so. So, you know, somebody with the powers to do so should do that. I just want to mention that I sit on the board of the Religion and Conservation Biology Working Group at the Society for Conservation Biology. Mm -hmm. And if you go onto their website, the working group has issued guidelines for conservationists on how to catalyze and facilitate and maintain partnerships with religious groups in their project areas. So that might be helpful to some people in the audience who want to start working with religious groups because they think that will be a powerful contribution to their project, but don't know where to start. So Lizzie, given that it appears to be pretty integral um, to achieving effective conservation actions, how has local ecological knowledge been incorporated into international conservation policy? So one of the most well-known policies integrating LEK are the HE targets, which were set out in 2011 by the Convention of Biological Diversity. Specifically, um, HE target 18 asks for local cultures and traditions to be respected and integrated and fully participate in conservation projects. 
but I'm sure Lisa will give you a way better overview as her work on cultural ecosystem services has worked to progress multilateral environmental agreements included in the CBD aims. So just to introduce Lisa, she's an interdisciplinary environmental geographer and often works in South America and Africa on both conservation and indigenous community projects. And since 2013, Lisa's been working at the UN Environment World Conservation Monitoring Centre, right in the science and policy interface. Lisa, can you give us a quick overview of how you think LEK has been incorporated into international policy? Well, I think, as you say, it's at the highest level in the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's got its own target there, the H to target 18, which is great. And another convention is that the Ramsar Convention, a target 10, who's also um, focusing on, on the importance of respecting and promoting the use of Indigenous knowledge. Based on your own work, I know you've worked a lot in Guyana, down in South America. What do you think's worked well policy-wise integrating LEK in that project? Well, in that project, we are working very much so on, on testing these new methods of, of improving uh, the integration, because actually Guyana has got a, a good case. They have already produced a, a national sort of action plan for integrating traditional knowledge back in 2009, I think it was. But unfortunately, didn't have quite the funds to make sure it was implemented. So we want to make sure with this um, project that we are advancing that level. And also just to say that this project came about because of a sort of a global assessment that we did within the center to sort of see the progress of countries mm-hmm. on, um, on, on, on the IHT targets. And there was highlighted that countries were not progressing enough on IHT targets. They weren't able to um, integrate traditional knowledge to the level that the, the convention had stated. So therefore, this project came about when we wanted to try a, a new method, a much more participatory method on the ground working with indigenous communities, which we sort of used in community-owned solution. We also used participatory video which is a a very nice uh, method in terms of creating a dialogue a two-way dialogue between the communities and and the decision makers Mm. that we have this new method of analyzing policies to sort of see what level of integration is already there and then use that as as a a baseline that's what we've done recently and then we could actually see that there's been some progress on the level of integration of of traditional knowledge so without this sort of policy review we haven't been able to 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 monitor that so there's sort of a a positive sign and also it was an encouraging result that we see some is going in the right direction. So have you run into any specific issues? What doesn't work well? When is it really difficult to integrate local ecological knowledge in a policy context? Well, we've also done a literature review and, and the findings there was that we have we can say three types of barriers. The first one is a communicative barrier which arise from not maybe using the right language and, and terminology when you're communicating with the traditional knowledge holders and, and that you also maybe not when you're having kind of um, consultative kind of processes, you're not doing those in, in, in the right way. Maybe you're demanding people to come out to the capital and rather than going to their community and so on. And then the next barrier is more conceptual, like people and organisation not quite understanding the holistic and comprehensive values and practices mm-hmm. and the context of underlying kind of the indigenous knowledge. And then the last one is political, which is sort of more difficulties and unwillingness to maybe share power and land and things like that. But there's actually the most tricky barrier to overcome the political barrier and, and those kind of reasons for that are sort of being 
the kind of thing, the lack of legal instrument that sometimes exists in some countries. There's also been the lack of recognition and respect of tenure, and then the lack of political consistency. So even if you have maybe some good laws, judiciary system in place and land tenure, it might actually not be um, applied consistently throughout um, mm. in, in the country and so on and throughout times, depending on the government sometimes as well. So there's uh, quite a few different uh, barriers there, but I'm hoping that this literature review can, can bring some light on, on how we can try and overcome them. Speaking of overcoming barriers, where do you see the future of local ecological knowledge in conservation policy? I hope and I think that it's going to help to get a bigger, bigger space because I think we've seen that um, indigenous people and, and their territories are very much experts on, on conserving biodiversity and, and, and promoting sustainable development. I think some of the, the sort of the new studies that come out, they're kind of showing that um, deforestation rates are five times higher outside indigenous people's territories. So I'm hoping that the new kind of post-2020 framework for biodiversity will obviously include again a, a specific target for indigenous knowledge people's integration, but I'm hoping it to be more integrated throughout. I suppose yeah. maybe we need mainstreaming of local ecological yeah. knowledge into yeah. everything we do. It's going to make for interesting discussions at the next CBD mm. COP with the new targets and everything. So Lizzie, because I'm an ignorant biologist, me, um, in practice, how does social science work? What are the kind of things you go out and do? Educate me. Well, one of the great things about social science is it really does cover such a broad set of methods and approaches. And each is designed to collect, say, a different set of data, um, achieve a certain response. So that can include spoken interviews. For my research, I use a lot of online surveys. And some of my friends that are going out and working in Africa and doing primate research using kind of participatory methods and group discussions, which they might record. For my master's research, I've used like maps and participatory mapping. But one of the things I wanted to say was what people don't often realise in conservation research, like here at ZNSL, you might be talking about some quite like sensitive activities like hunting or deforestation. So there's quite a lot of important work on the ethics side to like prevent everyone involved, keep everything anonymous. Okay, cool, excellent. So our next speaker can also tell us a story or two about involving local communities in shaping conservation actions and how to use social science methods to do this. And this time by using, and I love this, participatory video. Now, Professor Jay Mystery is from Royal Holloway University and converges environmental and social science methods within a framework of participatory action research. These are like the biggest words I've ever used in my entire life. I am not <laughs> going to lie. So welcome to this participatory podcast, really? Jay. Um, <laughs> now, you. I clearly have no idea what I'm talking about. I just said random words that I wrote down beforehand. So what is participatory video? Okay, so uh, participatory video is when you have a group of people who make a video that is important to themselves about an issue that's very relevant to the community. And it's actually the people themselves that are making those videos and voicing their concerns. So it's kind of representation of the community by the community. And what are the aims of this? What do you then use this participatory video for? I suppose most of the work done initially when participatory video first kind of came about, I would say, was it very much in the kind of development context. So it was looking at issues of health or uh, other kinds of social well-being. There was not a lot of work really done in the kind of conservation area. But in recent times, people have started using it more in terms of thinking about environmental issues. So I suppose it's where 
people can air their concerns or voice their concerns and their own representations of how they may contribute to conservation, some of the impacts of conservation, uh, some of the questions around conservation and how that's affecting livelihoods, biodiversity. Uh, I work with indigenous communities, particularly in South America, Venezuela, Brazil, Guyana. Um, and I have a project at the moment which is looking at how the indigenous communities that live in and around protected areas, um, how can they have a better voice and representation in the management of those protected areas? Mm. Uh, a lot of that management is done by central government. And even though they know that the local people play a big role in those protected areas, sometimes they're living very far and remote away from the capital or where kind of mm. those decisions are made. So there's very little chance for them to kind of get a voice in, into that. And there's also issues around communication and how some of these communities communicate. They may not speak English, for example, or the national language. They may not be able to read and write. And a lot of indigenous people with their indigenous knowledge is very oral. You know, doing orally work mm. is much easier for them to have their own representation of what they might feel in terms of their concerns. So that's how we've been using, for example, in Guyana, trying to get people's voices into this kind of decision making process about how those protected areas are managed. And then taking those videos that are made by the local communities to the decision makers. And then what we're trying to do is what we would call a video dialogue between the communities and the decision makers using video as the kind of vehicle of having a conversation. And so then we would screen the videos to the decision makers and they would have their discussions and then we would do a response video from them and we'd take it back to the community. So that's kind of a bit of a taster of how I'm kind of using it at the moment. Oh wow, so this is like instead of having a phone conversation right there and then, it's like yeah, video, response by video, yeah, response by video. That is so cool. I suppose that overcomes a lot of the potential biases that you can get in traditional interview techniques. Say if you ask specific questions, you might elicit a certain response and prime people. So it's really nice that they get to speak in their own words and their own dialect. In terms of indigenous people and maybe other kinds of traditional communities, the way that they view the environment is quite different to, mm. for example, my own as a scientist kind of way I might view the environment. They have different ways of conceptualizing, for example, relationships like ecological relationships or whatever it might be. And so you, you're able to capture some of that stuff through the videos because they kind of show those relationships in the way that they see them, which is quite different to the way I might see them or a scientist yeah. or a zoologist might see them. Yeah. I suppose in terms of avoiding bias as well, if you had, like, say, a conversation right there and then only certain people would feel like they could speak up, this might be more of a community approach. Yeah, I suppose, I don't want to say it's the panacea kind of approach to do anything because every methodology has its limitations and, and we always have to take a critical approach to whatever method we, we use. And one of the good things with participatory video, the whole participatory aspect of it is not just that you film and you get lots of different people's views, but the whole process involves then screening it back to the community. And so more people participate by being in the screening. They may have not had their voice in the video, but they participate by being in the discussion and in the audience okay. until the community say, okay, now I'm satisfied with that video, you can now take it to the decision maker. So I bet that sparks some really interesting discussions within that community that you would maybe not have been able to just gather yeah. Uh, originally. Yeah. So how do the decision makers react to it? I, I'm a bit of a beginner in that part of it, but I suppose this kind of thing of taking it to decision makers is kind of the big next step, which I've embarked on. And I've done it well, a couple of times, and I would have to say that it's varied and it's quite interesting because in any situation that people are happy to talk, but you also have to be happy to listen. 
And listening is really hard for a lot of people, especially when you're in a position of power. I mean, when we do the screenings, we prepare the, the decision makers beforehand to kind of give them an idea of how the information was collected, how the film was made, and, you know, that we really want them to listen hard. And, you know, these are the kind of things that we want them to kind of think about when they're watching the video. So we do give them a lot of prep. The reactions have been interesting in that in some cases, people have been quite open and said, yes, that's true. Maybe we need to make a change here, according to what someone said. And in other cases, people have been a bit defensive. So there's been different kinds of reactions. Mm. And I think I mean, that's part of, as a researcher, for me to then also evaluate these kinds of responses and what they mean and what would they then lead to. So that's part of the of the research that I'm doing. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really super, super cool. There is uh, one question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, if you had to put it in a nutshell, why do you think we need social science in conservation? I guess because conservation is social. Conservation is all about people, in my, in my opinion. Science is very useful, and you know we obviously have to know and be as rigorous as possible and objective, but actually, when it comes down to it on the ground, if conservation doesn't reflect kind of the values and the interests of the people that it affects, then it is, it's doomed forever, really. It will never succeed. I mean, I think there's really a growing consensus in conservation now that without behavior change in civil society, we're losing the fight to save the planet. And strengthening the social sciences to explore what is real behavior change and how do we monitor its impact in conservation. It's a huge new frontier that is so important because ultimately it's people's choices that are going to impact the planet. For me, it is, it's, it's very obvious that we need to work with both nature and humans, isn't it? Because humans and, and nature are, are intertwined. We, we depend upon each other. So for me, we need to make sure that um, we're using all the knowledge that, that is available for us to, to try and address the, the big loss of biodiversity and ecosystem services that we're seeing globally at the moment. From my own experience, I trained as a biologist and that was my first thing and then I did my PhD in physical geography. I didn't talk to anybody, I just measured plants. And then I came to a realisation towards the end of my PhD that actually nothing is going to change if we don't involve people, nothing, you know. I, I could see lots of stuff happening and I was thinking, I'm doing all this work but nothing is going to change if I don't involve people in this picture. And I suppose that's the whole thing about making change. Uh, that's the only way you need social science to make change.